This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. For nine days, 23-year-old Susan Smith spoke to reporters, teary-eyed and pleading for the safe return of her two young boys. The case began on October 25, 1994, when she told law enforcement that she had been carjacked at gunpoint by an African-American man who then drove off, kidnapping her three-year-old son, Michael, and her 14-month-old son, Alexander. For those nine days, Susan Smith became a household name, not just in her hometown of Union, South Carolina, but across the country. The story triggered a wave of fear across the small rural community. Residents began locking the doors they once believed were safe to keep open, fearing a dangerous man among them. But on November 3rd, the saga ended. Susan's red Mazda was recovered from the John D. Long Lake, along with her two sons, who had drowned while strapped inside their car seats. On that ninth day, Smith confessed that her story was a hoax, the carjacker was never real, and the woman plastered on TV screens across the nation was the killer for whom they tirelessly searched. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Susan Smith was a textile worker and perceived herself stuck in a bitter marriage in a small country town. She relished her nine days of media fame. Before the brutal murders, Smith was engaged in an affair with a man who did not want children. Seeing her own sons as an obstacle in the way of her happiness, she killed them in cold blood. One-third of Union's population was Black, and Smith's admission of her fabricated story sparked anger, sadness, and pain among the entire community. The jury was comprised of four Black men, five white men, two white women, and one Black woman. Together, they convicted Smith of murdering her children, but spared her the death penalty. Smith was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. She becomes eligible for parole in November of 2024. State Representative Tommy Pope was the 16th Circuit Solicitor in South Carolina and prosecuted Susan Smith. Today, he joins me with a look back at this high-profile case 30 years later. So, Representative, when did you first hear the name Susan Smith? So, it would have been 
in late 1994, I was actually the elected district attorney. We call them solicitors here in South Carolina. I represented York and Union counties. And uh, I always joke, uh, I was elected at 30 years of age against the incumbent. Um, they had the worst backlog in the state. I guess they figure I couldn't do any worse. I was uh, a, a young attorney. I'd been a, a sled agent in South Carolina, that's state law enforcement division. I'd been a, a, a police officer before then. So I'd gotten elected and my main task was actually uh, tackling the backlog. Again, we had the worst backlog in the state. We were working through that. And Union County was my smaller kind of quiet county size-wise compared to York County where the bigger number of cases were. I was actually in York County in, in a trial. Um, I always joke, I said I was doing the Lord's work. I was prosecuting the preacher who had embezzled from the daycare center. <laughs> and I was getting calls um, when, uh, so Susan had claimed initially that an African-American man had carjacked her and, and then put her out, but taken the children. And so I was getting calls each night after my you know day in court on my other case. And the sled agents that were working the case were just kind of just bringing me up to speed. And quite candidly, based on my law enforcement experience, I really felt like it was probably some type of domestic situation. You know, she and her husband were kind of estranged and trying to deal with, you know, kind of a divorce situation. I truly didn't believe that a carjacker would take young children. I thought maybe the kids are at the beach house, you know, with their cousin hiding out or something like that, you know. But uh, long story short, um, near the end of that, I guess must have run about um, nine or ten days of her, you know, on national television. This was kind of the same time OJ was going on. And so, you know, court TV and everything was just kind of starting our interest in these type cases. Um, and so the public was following it because first they were looking to help search. You know, they were looking for the car description. They were looking for the African-American carjacker. Uh, there were calls coming in from all over the country and law enforcement was working through that. A collateral investigation, which is normally the case in these situations, you look at the family, you look at the husband, the wife, you know, family members to see if it could be something like we talked a little more domestic. But I got a call that night. Um, we had just finished the other trial that um, that she had confessed and that the um, boys were in John D. Long Lake uh, down in Union. So I loaded up, um, left up here in New York County and went down to the lake and was actually there when the boys were, were recovered from the lake. Um, it had gone on again a number of days with her, you know, begging the public for help, helping to look for the kids. And so you know, it was the most disappointing of, of endings. I mean, obviously the tragedy, but, you know, based on the hope somehow they were going to still be found. And so that's uh, the first time I really saw, you know, or heard from Susan Smith or you know, heard of Susan Smith. And the first time you know, I really got involved in that. Can you share what that was like to be sure. lakeside when that car was recovered and when the two little boys were realized to have been inside. Sure. As as a prosecutor, I had often gone to crime scenes. As a police officer, I'd gone to homicide scenes and helped recover bodies and things of that nature. I always am very careful to not get involved in the scene, to accidentally make myself a witness. But by the same token, even though I tried a number of other cases, it was just clear to me with the media involvement, it was something 
we had really never seen. I mean, we see it, you know, often now, you know, the Murdoch case here in South Carolina, and, you know, we see it all over the country now. But at that time, I knew that the case was going to be bigger than even the loss of life, even than the crime. And so I wanted to go selfishly to remind myself of what I saw that night later on when I'm prosecuting the case and could choose to go forward or not, could choose to seek the death penalty or not, when I just got tired of dealing with it to remind me why I do what I do. So long story short, the the contrary to what some people thought, it wasn't a, a like a, a ploy by law enforcement in not recovering the um, car earlier because divers had gone in that lake earlier. It was a very st- steep ramp that went straight down into the lake. And so logic would dictate um, that the car would go, you know, straight off the ramp from the speed and it would go straight out. What actually found, happened, one, we found from where the car was ultimately recovered, uh, two, from some vehicle testing we did later, the car actually went and made kind of a J. And so instead of going straight off the ramp, it, it kind of circled as it floated, and they call it turtling. It, the car would have gone upside down ultimately and then nose down. So where you would think it would be over here, it was actually over there to the side um, had lifted down. But anyway, they, they divers got it. They literally, you know, have a rollback and secured a hook and, and pulled the car out of the water, and the two boys who unfortunately had, you know, been in the water now for a number of days um, – were still in their car seats in the back seat of the car. And I remember many of the crime scene guys who I'd worked with during my career were there. And, you know, you end up in law enforcement or prosecution getting kind of numb, you know, to crime scenes and death because you got a job to do. I guess it's, you know, somewhat like the military in that regard. But I saw grown men crying. And I think it was the combination of the tragedy of the scene of seeing those kids you know, in those car seats and the ultimate futility of the last nine to 10 days where we'd been searching for the kids, you know, seeing it in like that. So it was it was a, a traumatic scene and difficult. And as, as I shared, I, I saw um, normally stoic grown men and women, you know, reduced to tears. Part of what is so heartbreaking about this case is the perception of of a callousness or a cavalier attitude that a mother could have toward her children. And when you describe the recovery as such, was there any contrition at all? Was there any emotion anywhere near a commensurate amount from Susan Smith at that time when she, when she eventually confessed to law enforcement, was there anything to indicate that she felt remorse? So ironically, when I was there, I had one uh, young son close to the same age as Michael. And I, I, this was just in my mind, it was kind of an irony that what a pain in the rear end it is with car seats. You know, I swap and put them in your car and then I get them in my car and you move them in and out. You strap them back down and all this, all the things you do to make them safe. And I thought somehow it was an irony, you know, that evening that that was the the you know, conveyor of their death that they were strapped in those seats. And so I, I thought that was interesting. So I go on to town and I went to where law enforcement was meeting with Susan because law enforcement had met with Susan and David during the week numerous times doing polygraphs, different things. As I told you earlier, there was kind of a dual investigation. And ultimately, 
you know, her story started unraveling and she had told, uh, you know, first, of course, she tells the African-American story and then she tells where it happened uh, and where it happened. It couldn't have happened because the light there where she arguably would have been stopped would have had a pressure plate and another car would have had to trigger that light. You know, in other words, it would stay green most of the time unless you pulled up to the corner, you know, in which case my light would then turn red. So we kind of, you know, law enforcement worked through that. But anyway, when I get to where they had her, I asked the, the law enforcement folks, and it was, uh, it was a sled agent. It was the sheriff of Union County. It was a lady from the FBI. And I asked them, could I see her confession? And they said, oh, she's much too upset to, to you know, write a confession. And I said, well, guys, you know, we're going to prosecute this thing. I mean, we need to, you know, have something documented. So that's when they, they went in the, quote, confession. They gave her a legal pad and told her, tell us how you're feeling that day. And, you know, that's out in the public domain now. We used it at trial. But it basically began, it was the worst day of my life. Someone I loved didn't love me. I sunk to my lowest when I let the boys go down the ramp without me. Uh, the unfortunate thing for me, and, and ironically, I think in many ways, Susan got treated different because she was a, a female and a mother than it would have been had it been the carjacker or had it been, you know, David Smith, you know, for example, the father, you know, because what happened, I had never seen a circumstance and I'm not, I'm, I have been critical. I'm not going to be overly critical of law enforcement. Um, they treated, they treated her different uh, from the, differently from the standpoint. If it was, for example, the African American guy, and he said he rolled him in the lake, they'd say, "What did you do? Then what did you do? Did you let the breakdown? Then what did you do? Were you inside the car? We were outside. You know, all the who, what, when, where factual things you would need to have to prosecute a case. In this circumstance, they let her kind of just write, you know, her her story and again the irony is i saw both during those 10 days looking back and from her confession is susan enjoyed the limelight you know because again this was a this was the old days with the media trucks and you know i'm talking about the top shelf you know today show or whoever you know the the number one frontline people were coming and she was getting you know all these appearances the night she rolled the kids in the lake, she came to a house up the road from John D. Long Lake. And they had called David because she had been, quote, carjacked. And I remember um, we had the raw footage from WSPA out of Spartanburg. Um, and it was the first, just happened to be the first anchor person that got there from the local media. And I remember she had the camera on, but the, the lights, you know, like, you know, that was back in the old days when you had a big guy like me carrying your camera, you know, nowadays they got the little camera, you know, so the cameraman, the, the anchor person's kind of saying, okay, when we come on, we're going to ask you what happened. You have the lights are not on yet. David Smith looks like a deer in the headlights. David Smith looks like someone who was just told your kids have been carjacked. You know, I mean, he's just distraught. Um, Susan looks at him and giggles something to the effect that we're going to be on television. And then, of course, the camera comes up and she tells the story again. And she she enjoyed that attention throughout. And so at the end of the day, as far as the kids, I think 
the greatest pain Susan feels is for Susan, mm. you know, and, and her unfortunate circumstances. Even during the 10 days, it was part and parcel to this boyfriend thing. The guy that had written her kind of a Dear Jane letter, Dear John letter, whatever. Um, he was never really going to be with her. You know, his, his dad owned the factory and he was kind of going through the secretarial pool. But he had given her this letter, of, you know, um, I would love to be with you, but I'm not ready for children. Well, that was just a good cop out because he didn't want to look you in the eye and say, you know, I kind of one night stand was great or whatever, you know, and be done with it. Um, but she was tied to somehow if she could get right with him, this was all going to work out. She literally was wearing, I think he went to Auburn. She's wearing his Auburn sweatshirt the night that uh, she rolls the kids in the lake. Um, she told David, the husband, that I'm sure Tom, the guy that we're talking about, will want to come visit the house, you know, during the vigil, during the, the watching of it. But I think she really believed if, if this worked out, she would uh, ultimately get the man in the end, as, as macabre as that sounds. But in her car was her wedding album, I think her wedding dress. I'm trying to remember, I always said symbolically, basically everything to do with her, her previous life, other than perhaps David Smith himself, was in that car. You know what I mean? So it was almost right. like a, a do-over, a fresh start. But... You know, I thought about it, too. If if she had, you know, people say, well, why didn't she just give up the kids? I would I would take the kids kind of thing. You know, people all said that. Well, and again, I don't claim to be a psychiatrist, psychologist, but if she gives up the kids, she's a bad mother and she's less worthy for Tom, you know, the guy that she wants to have. But if a carjacker takes your kids, then you're a victim. And, you know, it kind of puts you in a different posture of needing rescuing, for lack of a better term. And so I think she she put a lot of thought into that regard. I think her ultimate remorse, even up and through the trial, was um, how it affected her. We'll be right back with more of this story. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's walk through the statement of facts as you presented to the jury. At some point, she had received this letter from Tom Finley that said, you know, they weren't going to be together. She and David were, uh, her husband were kind of estranged. And she rode around, you know, in desperation and depression, whatever you want, with the kids, um, trying to kind of sort things out. And this is by her testimony, you know. Um, what we would, and then ultimately went to the lake and chose to roll the kids um, down the uh, down the ramp, and then she ran to a house and, and claimed a carjacker had done it. Uh, we tested a vehicle. Her the flotation of her vehicle. It wasn't a reenactment. You know, it was ironic. Everything got made out into drama. It wasn't really an, a reenactment. It was a vehicle testing scientifically that we had to argue with the court. Because so, I wanted to know things like, 
Um, how long did the vehicle float? Was there a chance if she had, you know, made a bad decision and changed her mind? It always said if she was really remorseful and, and made a split decision, then realized she's wrong. When she showed up to that house, she'd at least be wet. In other words, if I rolled my kids down the ramp, I'd at least go back in. And what we know now, the car exploded for six minutes or so. I'm not saying it'd be perfect, but you would have at least made a shot. You know what I mean? If you realize you'd, you'd messed up. So bottom line, she rolled them down and she started the story. And I will say to a certain extent, the media attention evolved to media pressure when she started tripping up. I'm talking about days into it with her story and it not matching up or like law enforcement figuring out the the part about the traffic light and things of like that, you know, because ultimately I think if the media hadn't kind of lost faith in her, um, she may have, you know, I hate to say it, we would still be looking for the nondescript African-American guy. That was always my biggest fear as a prosecutor. Um, if she had stuck with that story and identified somebody, you know, that mortifies me to think I would be trying somebody based on on that lie. You know, so fortunately, uh, that didn't happen. But um, again, we went through the nine, 10, whatever days it was, and law enforcement keeps working. To give you, a, uh, by way of example, she was always kind of like flirty by nature, apparently. Uh, I can remember one of the sled agents you know, her kids are in the lake, unbeknownst to us at that time. Her kids are in the lake, they're picking her up to take her to do some more interviews or a polygraph or something like that. Um, and she starts kind of flirting with them and says, you know, it's a beautiful day. I wish you and I were riding to the beach instead of uh, instead of going to, uh, to law enforcement. But uh, so, you know, I, again, I give David Smith a lot of credit that he stayed focused and supportive of her until, you know, the ultimate betrayal took place. I mean, he went, even though they were kind of estranged, I mean, he was there next to her every time she was pleading to the media, you know, he was there doing everything he could. And so, you know, um, obviously losing your kids would be horrible, but knowing that happened at the hands of your wife would be so much worse. You know? So you are saying that she claimed that she made that decision as a spur of the moment then? How right, was that reconciled with her wedding album and dress in the car, which indicates a premeditation and a planning? Yeah. And again, ultimately, I think the defense came up with something to the effect of she was just taking it to somebody's house or something. Um, you know, the difference between us and the defense, they, they don't have to be bound by the truth. You know what I mean? They can craft whatever story and we have to kind of take and piece together uh, what we, we could. Um, just everything I ultimately saw of her and, and you know, I'm sure it's uh, I don't like to look in the DSM, the diagnostic diagnostic manual, because I see me in there too many yeah. times, too, you know, which I, but, um, you know, whether she's histrionic or. Uh, what of the, you know, she's either a princess or a victim mm -hmm. always in the way she kind of operates. And um, I mean, again, I saw that throughout the trial. There was one time, so I told you we tested the vehicle. And again, I wanted to just understand, did she have a chance to go do something else? And also in a death penalty case, in the penalty phase, the question of the nature of the crime comes in, something that might not be relevant for, for guilt part, but would be relevant for evidence uh, of, of, of the nature of the crime. So we had a video in the car and we had to do all these things to test and make sure the weight, like you had to 
things you wouldn't even think about. You take oil out, you have to match the weight. You take gas out, you know, things you couldn't dump into a freshwater lake, you know. So we do all this stuff, recover, put the car seats in. You know, again, it wasn't a reenactment. You know, we wouldn't put little mannequins in or anything. It was, you know, sandbags and things of that nature. But anyway, we had the camera mounting. Like I said, it went into the water and kind of turned and, and jade and ultimately turtled. Well, inside, you could see the water. So now the car is painted, pointing straight down, and you could see the water fill up, you know, as it came through the vents. And ultimately, you're knowing that it's going to come over. You know, the car seats are facing down. It's going to cover these kids' faces. Well, um, so while the jury was out, we had to argue about admissibility. And to do that, you have to do the whole thing. You present it to the judge. And this six-minute tape would literally, if you watched it, knowing what was going on, saw the way, it, it would almost make you feel like you were suffocating just watching it, you know, just watching and knowing what happened to the boys. So we got the, back then, you know, we didn't have all the projection stuff. We got the big TVs. We're turning them toward the judge. Susan's sitting over there. And I listen, and we're watching. I mean, there's not a sound on the video. Um, and I hear noise from her table and I look and she's like giggling, writing notes or playing tic-tac-toe or something with the, the law clerk, you know, the defense law clerk over at the table. So anyway, we argue the whole thing. We get it admitted. The jury now comes in. Now the TV's turned around. We can't even see them at our counsel tables. And you're watching the jurors' faces because we know what we just saw in that six minutes. You know what? And same deal. You'd watch them. You know, it's almost like they'd get short of breath. Some would start crying. Suddenly over here, it's the other table. I hear I hear sound again, but the jury's in the courtroom now. So instead of giggling, Susan's crying, and so that that triggered me on on kind of the manipulation component of her and the the fake remorse. I mean, again, I think she's remorseful. Uh, hopefully, you know, she's remorseful about the kids, but ultimately, she's remorseful because what happened to Susan. Mm -hmm. You know, so. And, and, you know, it was interesting, um, you know, people talk to me, I always uh, treat the Smith case in my mind as a loss from a from a trial standpoint, because I was seeking the death penalty. And um, people said, well, you know, you know, a woman rarely gets the death penalty in South Carolina, blah, blah, blah. Why would you do that? In my mind, if we're going to be fair and if justice is going to be blind, if it was the black carjacker, nobody would think twice. So when... We were ready to try it. So, so it really happens about October of 1994. Uh, we were really ready to go to trial um, January, February of 95. You know, it's fairly straightforward. We've been following the investigation the whole time. Uh, the defense claimed they were not ready. And in retrospect, what was going on was they were going from Susan the monster who killed her kids to Susan the victim. They started putting out in the public, um, you know, things, you know, Susan's stepfather and she had a relationship, you know, just a number of different things. And, and to their credit, they were working toward Susan being a victim of her circumstances. And we tried it ultimately in July of 95. But what I, I believe and what I observed by the time we came around to trial, it, it had gone from, you know, the death penalty to why was I even trying poor Susan? And I, I took the view. I knew how difficult it was to get a, a death penalty, particularly for a female. Death penalty cases are hard anyway, but particularly a female in South Carolina. 
But I just felt personally that if the death penalty was appropriate for the African-American carjacker, if that had been the case, or if David Smith had done the same thing that Sousa did, the case, I felt like it, you know, kind of in, in justice being blind, I needed to go forward with Susan in the same manner. The difficulty there, I think, and, and again, work in this case, I guess, in the years of talking about it, I've got to become a, a lay psychologist, I guess, is, is we feel better, we as citizens feel better if there's the bad guy or the boogeyman or somebody out there, you know, a criminal that's not our family, that's not us, that we can, can assign blame to because it's much more comfortable because I can protect myself from that. But it's hard to protect yourself when the defendant is your wife, your sister, your babysitter, the people we interact with every day. And I think that was a difficulty, you know, for a jury there. You want to assign some mental health answer. And Susan was um, knew right from wrong. You know, I'm not saying that what she did doesn't require some mental illness effect, but there was nothing that prevented her from having other choices and knowing other things, uh, you know, knowing options for other things. And so um, ultimately, you know, we went forward with the case, even recognizing that difficulty, because I thought that would be justice. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And let's talk for a minute about when you were in trial, the, the jury returned a verdict two, after two and a half hours. Right. They returned that, that conviction. But where, as you say, the loss lies, depending on how you look at it, is the fact right. that she was sentenced to 30 years and with an eligibility for parole. And in fact, she's right. eligible for parole um, exactly one day after her confession, 31 years later. So this year, November 4th of this year, she is eligible right. for parole. That's right. Walk us through what it felt like or what you went through as a prosecutor to have secure, secured that conviction so quickly, but then, you know, notwithstanding everything that you just said about mercy and how the larger community feels to... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to have that, to sure. feel that letdown or to have that community return a verdict that did say or message in some way, shape or form, there's mercy here. There's, right. there's a reason here that sure. would allow you and enable you to not only be eligible for parole, but as she has said, as she has testified in front of the parole board just this year, that she would be a quote, good stepmom. That's hard. Right. That's hard to swallow. Right. And so what happened in, in that context? In a death penalty case, you have two phases. You have the guilt phase and the penalty phase. The guilt phase is strictly did they commit the crime? And, and of course, we worked hard to, to dot every I and cross every T. I remember uh, David Ruck, the defense attorney, said to me during the trial, he said, well, we pretty much abandoned, you know, it's tongue in cheek, but he said, we pretty much abandoned the black guy did it. 
defense. And I said, well, that's all right, David, because this notebook is for that in case you go that way, you know, because our jobs can prove it beyond reasonable doubt. So you were kind of darned if you do, darned if you don't. Somebody said, well, she confessed. Why did you even have to try her? Well, as I alluded to earlier, that wasn't much of a confession. Mm -hmm. I sunk to my lowest when I rolled the kids down the lake without me. I mean, that that ties you to doing it, but it does not do much past that. I mean, even when we were testing the vehicle, trying to determine, was she in the car and got out? Because that ramp was steep. If you were in the car, and because they kind of couched it like she was going to commit suicide and then changed her mind. Well, the truth is, if, if you're going to commit suicide and change your mind, you put on the brakes and you save all three of you. So that didn't get it carry water, you know, too much water, no pun intended. But so anyway, um, in the penalty phase, the biggest thing we had was the nature of the crime. And so then that's when we get into the what the boys would have faced um, and all of that. And, and countering that, again, and I credit the defense, they spent six months kind of kind of putting out there that Susan was a victim of a you know overbearing mother, a victim of the rich guy, you know who took advantage of her, uh, you know you know her husband David. Um, during the trial, David had come to me and said that he had been approached by an attorney that was helping him because again I represent the state, I don't represent. You know, I represent the interest of the victims, but only to the extent it's always the state versus Susan Smith, not David, you know, or whoever the victim, Michael and Alex versus Susan Smith. But anyway, they had talked to him about writing a book. And I said, uh, I said, David, um, you know, you need to do what you need to do. They had suggested that it almost be some therapy, you know, to let him get some pent up feelings out on paper and that kind of thing. And I said, that's you do ultimately what helps you heal. I've got no problem with that. I said, the one thing I'd say is whatever you do, don't let them release it till after the trial's over. You know what I mean? Just to not muddy the waters with that or impinge on his credibility. I remember the day we walked into the courthouse at the beginning of the trial, David Ruck, the defense attorney, had a copy of David Smith's book in his hand. So clearly that David was so distraught he went out on the courthouse steps and donated um, the money that he would arguably receive from a book to children's charities. That's how distraught he was. And the sad thing is for David, you know, he worked at the Winn-Dixie as a manager. He really could have used that money to kind of rebuild his life. You know what I mean? To go elsewhere and start over. And so, um, but anyway, so the defense painted him, of course, as, you know, callous and money grubbing in that regard. So uh, you had the stepfather who had uh, had relations with Susan. And so, um, again, by the time we go to trial, Susan, the victim, you then mix that in with trying the case in Union County, South Carolina, a little small mill town where everybody knows everybody. Um, to the defense's credit, again, was the probably one place on earth at that time that you try it that that would not give her the death penalty. So I think, again, that was a, a good decision on their part. And for me, as a prosecutor, it's it's hard to ask for a change of venue in the community where you're elected to represent them because you're acting like they can't be fair. You know, the people who put me here can't be fair. 
Um, it was kind of the same thing with the cameras in the courtroom. We ultimately did not have cameras in the courtroom. There were cameras all surrounding it, you know, all the issues, but not in the courtroom. And it was the same thing as a prosecutor. Um, some people said the only reason I was uh, was doing it is uh, they going for death penalty because I was running for governor, which I don't know where that one came across the radar. But the irony was, going back to cameras, if I asked for cameras in the courtroom, then I'm a glory hound. You know, if I don't ask for cameras, I got something to hide. So that was another one you really you really couldn't win. I always tell people that when David Smith testified. So in other words, during the surrounding the case, even community wise, there's a lot of of, you know, don't seek the death penalty. Don't go forward. Let her plead, which goes to what we talked about at the beginning. I remember seeing those kids at the lake out at the lake coming out of the lake. And it would have been easier for me to reduce the charge and let her plead to something, but it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been upholding my duty to the victims and them. So uh, anyway, we, um, we went forward and I said, the only time I wish cameras had been there selfishly is when David Smith testified. So now this is in the penalty phase. And what I've always done in death penalty cases in the penalty phase, for lack of a better term, I bring the victims back to life. And then basically have them killed again. Mm-hmm. And as, as, as macabre as that sounds, I get you to tell me about your loved one. I get you to tell me the good things. David's telling about watching videos with him. I always remember uh, Michael couldn't say 101 Dalmatians. He would say 101 Diametrons. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, but he'd want to watch that movie. Yeah. And so I got David to share all that with him, with the jury, and then I took him to the day when he got the phone call with Susan. You know what I mean? It's harsh. We don't rehearse it. I don't practice it. I tell him generally what we're doing. And it was just gut-wrenching. And I said, selfishly for me, anybody that thought I was trying that case for any other reason other than to get justice for David and those kids, if they heard David Smith testify in that courtroom, they, they would have had no doubt, you know, that it wasn't a you know, a circus, a facade. It was, it was legit, and uh, it was gut wrenching. You know, to hear him testify. And I have to say, you know, to me, it seems counterintuitive that the community in which this crime occurred would be the one to extend the most mercy. Although that that speaks to how gracious and graceful your community is, um, because to that point, you know, Alexander was he was fourteen months old. He was mm-hmm. just over a year mm-hmm. old, and David. Mm-hmm testified, for example, yes, at at the penalty phase and also at her parole hearing that she just had against her getting parole. My point being that, you know, the nucleus, those closest to these victims, yourself included, have been fighting for, you know, a blind justice, let's say. And then the community writ large, however, felt differently. And let me share one thing uh, just and you may double check behind me as of yet. I think the information you're talking about that the hearing was in anticipation of the hearing and David had said publicly, you know, that he would be fighting against it. The things I've seen where Susan said she'd be a good stepmother Mm -hmm. was an article about it, but the parole hearing has not taken place. It will actually be like you said, whatever the 30 days, I mean, 30 years part that you were saying earlier. You saw to me. So to my knowledge, Unless you got it in front of you, to my knowledge, there's been no hearing yet. That was all kind of speaking in anticipation of the hearing. You're right. You see what I'm saying? I do. That she'll she'll be eligible. 
You're right. Those were actually from transcripts from the jail or from the the from her incarceration. They're transcripts yeah, from her phone that. calls. She, yep. That's correct. Right. She You're said right. that and then David said that that he would be, you know, available to oppose it or something of that nature there. So going back to, you know, sort of the this is my my word for it, the narcissism sure. displayed right. by her. We know that her defense psychiatrist diagnosed her with dependent personality disorder and major depression. Now, right. my my question to you is in working with or, you know, in, in communicating with David leading up to and during the trial, did he ever express something like, you know, I in the back of my mind, I'm actually not surprised or I did see red flags or somehow I knew this, like, had she given any indication of her mental state being possibly, you know, even perceiving it, even able to do anything close to something like this? Did David say he he saw aspects of that or was he fully surprised? I, I think David was fully surprised. Yeah. I think, you know, over the years, you know, subsequent to Smith, this out long ago it was, I used to have a pager. And if I saw a New York number, an Atlanta number, I knew someone had, had you know, it was the news calling and someone, you know, mother had killed their children. They would talk to me about it. There's none of the standard like postpartum depression type things that you've seen in some of the other, you know, child death things. There were no kind of triggers like that that, that were seen. Um, and again, I think that's what what kind of mystifies and frustrates, you know, everyone, because you want kind of a clear cut answer. At least you can see, well, we saw it coming and, you know, this. I, I think, honestly, Susan was so focused on the potential that that could be that she could be with that Tom Finley that I think she really saw this as a viable alternative. Again, I'm not a psychologist, you know, but I think she thought, you know, if I could just wash my, if I could turn back time and have never been married and never had these kids and suddenly that guy would be with me, which she was deluding herself in that regard, certainly, you know, but I don't think there was a major I think her depression was things were not going to her plan. Again, no disrespect to anybody that battles depression. You know, I understand that part. I'm not demeaning that, but it did not rise to the level. It was interesting too. I have never had this quote diagnosis from the you know, the, the state hospital. They claimed that she was so suicidal and so remorseful this is the defense talking now not susan that that um that she wouldn't be able to testify because she would ask uh, for the death penalty and that was ludicrous that there's no such definition as that you know and i, I kind of laughed tongue-in-cheek again not to be disrespectful we had a bomb threat during the trial and uh susan beat me out of the courtroom and i always said if you know, if you're really that suicidal, stick around, you know, stick around with me in here a while. But, you know, right. so that it, it was mm. was really a facade. And I think ultimately, I mean, a couple of things. One, talking about the jury, they didn't know life didn't mean life. You know, I think back then one of the jurors even said, I think she'll have to sit in the prison the rest of her life and think about those kids. Well, as we know, She's been in prison having sex with guards. She's mm -hmm. at pen pals. She's doing all these things. So I think that was a fallacy, you know, from the jury standpoint. I think ultimately, going back to your question about the jury itself, it's a small community. Everyone knows everybody. Um, say it was your your brother, 
and I was on the jury, you know, that did something. And I know I'm going to see you, you know, every Thursday at, at the Walmart or whatever and be uncomfortable. And so I think given the lesser sentence, you know, was trying to some relief of moving past that, because as everybody knows, unfortunately, with a death penalty, it seems like it never goes away. I mean, I got people, you know, that are still on death row that they keep having hearings for. And so, I, I mean, I see that probably as that jury thinking the easiest way for closure for the community was to give a lesser sentence. And it reminds me, in in contrast, as we discuss these, it reminds me of Vincent Brothers. Um, so he he killed all three of his children, his soon-to-be ex-wife and her mother, so famicide, um, mm-hmm. for a similar reason, you know, is printed mm-hmm. in black and white, which was essentially wanting to start clean and he was engaging, you know, he had a, a new partner. He wanted right. to start a fresh life with her. He did not want have to have to pay alimony. And therefore his answer was, like I said, to engage in a horrible famicide. And he was sentenced to death. He was convicted mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. five murders and sentenced to death. Now it took place in California. And so he is, obviously they, they don't levy the no, death penalty yeah. anymore. Yeah. Right. So right. he's in, in San Quentin, but you know, the, the justice is blind note and the community note, as you compare these two cases, it's sort of similar situations, similar reasons, self-serving, selfish, horrifying reasons. Um, he mm-hmm. too had a baby. It was, it was quite similar, just um, more on his part. Um, and there the death penalty was levied and, you know, it was 10 years later. That was in 2003. So about 10 years after on the other coast, but it says a lot. And, and you know, just to bring up as well, so you brought up the disciplinary record of Susan Smith, who, while incarcerated, has um, had in her disciplinary record, there are um, incidences of sexual right. relations with her guards of uh, smoking marijuana, of engaging in some other behavioral infractions that, you know, take that as, as you will. Um, so tell us about since, what has the community, how... What has the response been? And as you described, perhaps the psychology of the the lesser crime and moving forward, as you've progressed in your service to the state, what have your constituents said to you? What how what impact has it left on the community it, in Union County? It's been uh, it's and when I say comical, again the case obviously it, but uh, I can't tell you how many times you know people outside of Union, you know, but still maybe my constituents. You know, you should have sought the death penalty. And I'm going, yeah. I did seek the death penalty. You know what I mean? But I, I, I get what they're trying to say. But um, I've seen, um, you know, most people think she should have had, you know, more punishment, especially with her subsequent behavior. Again, I, I kind of touched on this earlier. I think it makes us uncomfortable when the defendant is too close to someone we identify with, i.e. our daughter, our wife, our mother, you know, whatever. It we want to assign something to push that away from interfering with our regular everyday life. And so, you know, to their credit, I think the community of union will always be known for this, but uh, much like I'll always be the Susan Smith prosecutor, but I think they've done well to move on um, past it. And I would imagine they just wish it would go away, you know, that life had really meant life and they would mm-hmm. just be able to go on and without dealing with it. Because, you know, much like we're talking today, um, you know, this year we'll probably have more Susan Smith 
you know, media type stuff going on again, which, uh, you know, probably that community would be glad to do without. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. I don't want to belabor this point, but I wanted to make sure I circled back on, again, as your role as prosecutor, but for that initial confession as it was written, as it was encouraged, but for that, do you think that that the defense would not have had such a successful time um, painting her as the victim? And do you feel... You know, were there were there changes made formally within the department? And of course, we are not knocking law enforcement. But, um, you know, was there an audit that happened and or was that the sort of the make or break? And unfortunately, step one that really became the point of no return for you as a prosecutor? I don't think that. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of things so that, you know, the defense, I've said several times, I think, did an admirable job. It was David Ruck and Judy Clark, and they yeah. focused at least at that time, their practice on, you know, kind of anti-death penalty, you know, uh, avoid the death penalty at all costs. And I used to always tell people that I was really not the yin to their yang. In other words, even though, you know, I was a young conservative police officer prosecutor, I didn't wake up every day going, woohoo, you know, who can I execute? You know, and so, but they, you know, so I didn't really mesh with their side. You know what I mean? As, as opposed to they are for the death penalty, I support the death penalty, but I always viewed it much like a, a, a military service. You know, um, I mean, there's some guys in the military that, that like shooting other people and some people that do it as part of their duty. Well, for me, you know, I don't relish the death penalty, but if whatever the most extreme penalty we have is what Susan Smith deserved there. So I think where I underestimated, they laugh, say sometimes I'm a little too much of a boy scout. The judge had had had, you know, some sort of a gag order. And so all this stuff that got put out, say, between January that got, quote, kind of leaked to the media or you know, the judge gave a gag order, but then suddenly Susan Smith's mother's on 60 Minutes telling all these things, you know, which I think were orchestrated to precondition that jury pool. You know, they knew Susan, the victim, whether they thought if none of it came in in the courtroom and they were supposed to set it aside, they knew that. And so I think that coupled with... um I just think law enforcement wouldn't have done it. And I want to give them credit. As we said earlier, if law enforcement hadn't done what they did do, I mean, we may still be looking for the African-American carjacker. So I want to respect that. But I just don't like, one, that that she got treated different from a statement standpoint than any defendants I've experienced in my law enforcement experience. Uh, again, with the mechanics, because some things I would want to know, if you take it kind of generally as a box suicide, as I said earlier, when you decide to abandon the suicide for yourself, it seems like the kids would be alone for the ride in a good way. You know what I mean? If I'm now not going to kill myself, then if I've changed my mind, because she, she kind of alluded to, but we didn't have the details that she's going down the ramp. And then suddenly we go from going down the ramp and then stopping. But she doesn't really say, did you get out of the car? Did you not? Did you put it brakes on? Did you not? Did you put it neutral? Did you not? You know, what happened that gets you out of the car and leaves those kids in there sinking for six minutes with you with no attempt to rescue them? It was interesting. Some of the statements she made to the media over the time 
were something to the fact that that when the the carjacker carjacker drove off with with the kids, they were crying her name. And I think those kids were crying her name, but they were crying her name when they were rolling down that ramp. I know I haven't been able to get out of my mind in just our short conversation, the six minutes, you know, and mm-hmm. thinking that they that they were suffering throughout that and that there was maybe maybe on Michael's part a, a knowledge of what was occurring. He was the older boy, he was three, and I just Sure. Ugh. And the thought of you. them calling mom and her hearing that, you know, and when you describe that she wasn't wet. Yeah. Um you know, it's it's hard to even hear. I I can't imagine again that the the non reconstruction videotape sure, and, the, and just sure. oh, it's just hard. Sure. And then, like I said again, you know, you you, you use your mind's eye to know because you know it was nighttime, so perhaps we're seeing something. To, but I mean, literally, they're strapped in. The mom's gone. I mean, that would be true if the mama just got out of a car. You know, I mean, I know with the, my kids and grandkids, you know, if they can't see mama, they may start crying. You know what I mean? Much less rolled and dark and all the things. Are, it, it, it's, it makes your chest tight. It was, it was and is horrific. Well, Representative, do you have any final thoughts on, on this case or on the trial, on the community, on Susan Smith, on anything that you'd like to share listener with listeners? Sure. I remember one thing, and, and again, I, I alluded a little bit to this. I've, I've given credit to that community. Um, you know, when the search was on and you're looking for the African-American carjacker, I remember um, there was an interview again with one of the, the Spartanburg TV stations, and they're kind of asking person on the street, you know, what are your opinions of this and that? And one of the things they were talking about was kind of the racial issue of, you know, the community blaming a black man or whatever. And the reporter asked this lady, it was an African-American lady up in Spartanburg, I think, or maybe she was on the street in Union, but the reporter was from Spartanburg. And they said, uh, well, what do you think about um, the community blaming a black man? And that was kind of a segue from the fact that everybody's searching for this described generically described black man. But anyway, the African-American lady said something that was very telling, I thought. She said, the community didn't blame a black man. Susan Smith blamed a black man. And I thought that that was beautiful, you know, because anytime, I mean, around the country, around the world, anybody that hears, you know, my voice thinks, you know, we're like straight off the Dukes of Hazard, you know, and, you know, you're not going to get justice in South Carolina or anything of that nature. And I just thought that community handled that exceptionally well, you know, for their part, the, the community of union, both black and white in the way they dealt with that. I thought that was a positive. Um, again, as I said earlier, I don't have the 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 vengeance that the, the anti-death penalty people do, but um, I do believe in truth and sentencing. And so the jury gave her life, even though we know the jury was never told that, you know, it was a 30 year life. In 1996, it changed. The legislature changed it. And now life means life in South Carolina. Um, But knowing that the sentence was life, my position from a parole standpoint is that she needs to serve the sentence that the jury believes she would get and that she needs to serve a life sentence. Representative, thank you so much. Thank you for your Absolutely. service. Thank you for prosecuting um, such a seminal, important case 
on behalf of Michael and Alexander. And thank you for your continued service to the state and this country. We are so grateful. And, you know, look, she's like we discussed, she's eligible this year. So certainly we'll have you back if, um, if something big develops. But I think many share your exact sentiment, sir. I enjoyed my time with you, Emily, and uh, tell my friend Trey I said hello. (laughs) I sure will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.